So we are all familiar uh, to some degree with the Christmas story and probably those famous lines from the, the angels who said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The advent, the coming of Jesus was the coming, the advent of peace. But when we think of the Christmas story, at least the way the Bible tells it, John the Baptist story is told as well. I know people like to read around old J the B to get to the good parts about Jesus, but he is a part of the story that God wants told. And that's what Drew just read for us, that as he lit the Advent candle, that was from John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who, who at the birth of his son, First time he, he spoke and he prophesied and he praised God. The first time he had, he had spoken in months. And he prophesied about the coming Messiah at the end of that prophecy. And, he, and he, he, he closes that by saying that Jesus will lead us, lead our steps in the way of peace. Not just that he will bring peace for us to have and enjoy ourselves, but that he will lead us in a way of walking and living that promotes and makes peace. This is a part of the Christmas story. The hope of Christmas is the anticipation of the Prince of Peace who leads his followers to become peacemakers. At Audrey and I's wedding, we memorized Colossians 3, 12 through 17 and recited it to one another. It's a beautiful and aspirational text about putting on the new self in the context of relationships. And right in the middle of that passage, uh, there's a part that has stuck with me more than the rest. And it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When you go about your life, what is ruling in your heart? When you are interacting with other human beings in any context, that text tells us that the thing that is supposed to rule your heart, to have decisive control over your emotions, your desires, your actions, is the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts means that the peace that Jesus brings and brought ought to make a difference to how you interact with other people and, and other relationships, that you are so gripped by the peace of Jesus that it flows out into your relationships. In the Bible, when it speaks of your heart, that's the core of who you are. This is saying that your very identity ought to be that of a peacemaker. I'm so eager for this to be true of us. I, I want you to adopt this as a part of your identity a part of your self-image. When you describe yourself or who you're aspiring to be, I want you to think, I am a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker is who I long to be. Peacemaking is an important biblical idea. It's not a small issue. It's all over the Bible, but it's too often overlooked. And I long for us to reclaim it as a church in a powerful way. Most famously, probably, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He's saying the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like sons. We are now sons of God through Jesus Christ. And our father is a peacemaking God who in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, it says in 2 Corinthians, and made peace by the blood of his cross, it says in Colossians 1. God is a peacemaking God. 
And his children have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way he did. So as we become peacemakers and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, I want to look with you all at 1 Peter chapter 3 to see the qualities or marks of a peacemaker. So would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 15, which says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and in this place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is in the second half of verse 11. So if you look at that, it's a quote from Psalm 34, and he says, Seek peace and pursue it. Peace is something that we need to seek and pursue. As I thought about this in the context of Advent, I realized that Christmas really is the most powerful picture of seeking peace and pursuing it, of peacemaking. Jesus came down into the world in all of its ugliness and sin. He saw a world that was at conflict with itself, at conflict with him, and he chose to get involved in all the complexities and difficulties. He humbled himself and became vulnerable. He didn't even passively settle for absence of conflict, but he actively pursued harmony and justice and love. Advent, then, is a reminder of our peacemaking Savior who, at the Advent yet to come, will bring perfect peace. Isaiah tells us that we await a world where lions lie down with lambs and where swords and spears are turned into farming equipment. So as we wait for this hope, what sort of people ought we to be? That's the question that Peter raised in 2 Peter chapter 3 that I preached on last week. He asked that question, and then he says in verse 14, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Being diligent to be found at peace is part of what it means to be waiting on the Lord. It's an extension of our waiting. I didn't mention it last week because I knew this sermon was coming, but we are called to live in alignment with what we hope for, and this means seeking peace and pursuing it. Being at peace in this fallen world, Peter says, will take diligence. 
The book of Hebrews elevates peacemaking to incredible heights when it says in chapter 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In that verse, peacemaking is intimately related to the kind of holiness one must have to see the Lord. And then he says to strive for it. Because it's not something that comes easily. I mean, you know this. That's why it's one of the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes at the beginning of that sermon is he's proclaiming good news to people whose lives are hard. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are the peacemakers. He's saying these these people's lives are generally not thought of as blessed. But he's saying, lift up your head because in my kingdom you are blessed. In other words, being a peacemaker is hard. But it's worth it. Because it's incredibly valuable to God. I've been rereading the book Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. And Rosaria was a lesbian uh, professor at a liberal university. And through God's grace and the patient friendship of a local pastor and and the, the love of a local church and the transforming truth of the scriptures, she became a follower of Jesus and repented from her old life. But she was very involved in the gay and lesbian uh, community of her university and of her city. And she wrote about what it was like to be in between those two communities after her conversion. And so let me read you an excerpt. She says, The time that I brought my drag queen friend to church pushed a lot of people out of their comfort zone. And when a lesbian student of mine recovered from a suicide attempt, first at the pastor's home and then later at my home, and the Christian community and the lesbian community had to spend a lot of time together, I was really nervous. My lesbian friends had to learn that not all Christians are bigots. My Christian friends had to learn that Christians have a lot to learn from gay and lesbian folks about mercy work. At first, I missed the power in this fruitful exchange and instead just felt deeply uncomfortable. I didn't know how to bridge the two groups. And sharing this one Friday night at the home of Ron and Robin Zorn, Rob, uh, Ron reminded me that bridges get walked on. And that's a normal part of being a bridge. Aha! And then I relaxed, remembering that this is the Lord's work, not mine. Bridges, though, do get walked on. And if the Lord calls us to be a bridge, we have to learn to bear in His strength the weight. And it hurts, and it's good. And the Lord equips. And he promises, as he promises in Scripture, he gives us the strength that we need to stand steadfast and trust in him. I love how she says, bridges get walked on. And it hurts, and it's good. And we have to learn to bear the weight in his strength. Peacemaking is hard. Like all spiritual warfare, we must die to ourselves. We must strive. We must follow Jesus' example. We must be filled with his spirit. This is what sons of God do. And God always blesses and rewards the faithfulness of his sons. James tells us that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I love that image. A whole harvest of righteousness is is sown as we faithfully sow seeds of peace. How do we seek peace then and pursue it? Well, Peter describes the virtues and the activities that mark a peacemaker. 
So I want to, I want, if we want to be peacemakers and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, then when the peace of Christ rules in your heart, your heart starts to look a certain way. And so how do we look when the peace of Christ rules our heart? Well, he says it so beautifully and succinctly in verse 8. He says, a tender heart and a humble mind. A tender heart and a humble mind. Christians ought to be people marked by a tender heart and a humble mind. Tender-hearted, humble-minded people are the kind of people who make peace in the world. When I read those two terms, I immediately thought of Jesus and how he describes his own heart. Charles Spurgeon once pointed out that there is only one place in the whole New Testament where Jesus directly describes his heart. There's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us what his own heart is like. He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and lowly in heart. As one author said, if Jesus hosted his own personal website, the most prominent line in the About Me drop-down would read, gentle and lowly in heart. So if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, it would be honoring to Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. This is who he is. Warm and welcoming, open and approachable, understanding and willing. He is tender-hearted and humble-minded. And in the context that he describes himself this way, it makes it even more meaningful because he's describing his heart in order to explain what he's just said, which is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No payment. He wants to give you, as a gift, rest when you come to him. Those who labor, And those who are heavy laden, those who are worn out by their own effort, and those who are weighed down by things outside of their control. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Earlier this year, I was in my father-in-law's barn that's on his parents' pasture, and I noticed an old uh, horse yoke. Uh, that caught my attention. He, he gave it to me because I liked it so much. And I put it on my office wall to uh, remind me of this passage. I love it because the ox jo- yoke that we generally think of kind of goes over the shoulder and makes it think that the main point is on the load that it's bearing. But this horse yoke goes in front of their chest, and so it's simple and it's straight with just a metal ring on either side of it, which puts the emphasis, I think, where Jesus meant it to be, which is that it unites two animals in their shared efforts. Jesus is saying, unite yourself to me. Join yourself to me, and I will bear the load so we can walk together. That's why he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then right after he says, learn from me, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So I think it's pretty clear that what we ought to learn when we come to him is how to be gentle and lowly in heart, right? If I said, learn from me, for I am great at cooking, then you would assume that what you were going to learn from me is how to cook. Well, when Jesus says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, we ought to assume that what we ought to learn from him is how to be gentle and lowly in heart. As we unite our lives to Jesus, he teaches us how to have a tender heart and a humble mind. And this leads burdened people into rest and peace. 
These are necessary virtues for peacemakers to cultivate. And here's why. Because a humble mind will be quick to listen and slow to speak. And a tender heart will be slow to anger. When conflict is brewing, a tender heart will assume the best of other people rather than assuming the worst. And a humble mind will assume that we are misunderstanding something and patiently seek clarity. And also be open to the idea that we ourselves are being tempted by warring passions within us, which James says is the root of conflict. A tender heart will value the opinions of others. And a humble mind will not always assume that my opinion is best. A tender-hearted, humble-minded person will refuse to judge other people with a less generous measure than they use when judging themselves. A tender-hearted, humble-minded person will care more about other people than about being right. This is so rare today. But this kind of person will make peace in the world. May we all take Jesus' yoke upon us and learn from him that he may give us tender hearts and humble minds. And in this passage, Peter also specifically applies, uh, speaks about what this disposition, uh, how this disposition applies to two different contexts. Through the first context, how we relate to one another as Christians. The second context, how we relate to the world. When we relate to one another as Christians, we're called to have unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love, as he says in verse 8. And then in verse 15, he tells us how we're to speak to unbelievers. He says we are to speak to them with gentleness and respect. So let's take those two contexts in order. First, within the church, we're to have unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love. As Christians, we are unified around the most important things. And we live in unity when we put first things first. But when we put second things first, where we diverge in our thinking, that's when we reap discord, and division. Let us unite around essentials of God and salvation, virtue and mission and love, and put first things first, having unity of mind and also sympathy toward one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Being sensitive to one another and how we're feeling and responding with time and with presence and with care and love. Brotherly love, as he says. Not viewing each other as strangers or as mere acquaintances or even as distant relatives, but as brothers, because this is what's true of you in Christ. He's not, unless you're not close with your brother, and that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that the intimate and transcendent bond ought to mark how you relate to your fellow believers. This is the kind of person you ought to be in fellowship with the church, with Christians. This is what your heart looks like when the peace of Christ rules it. And then he takes it a step further to tell us what our actions ought to look like. And this is where he makes us uncomfortable. And no, as he says this, he's still talking about relationships between believers at this point. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So he acknowledges that though the church is the bride of Christ, it's often more like a bridezilla of Christ. Christians still sin, and therefore they still sin against one another. 
But as we are looking to Jesus, when this happens to us, we won't respond in kind. But we also won't just take it like a doormat. That's not what he says. Jesus taught us to reject retaliation, but he went even further and he taught us to actively bless in return. We don't respond with revenge or retaliation, but we also don't respond with passivity and doing nothing. He calls us to the astoundingly countercultural way of returning a blessing for cursing. This text says that it is your calling to bless believers when they commit evil against you or revile you. Let me say that again. As a son of God, you are called to bless believers when they wrong you. You may say, that doesn't seem very fair. Well, so what? You, are, you have a high and holy calling from God himself above and beyond simply what's just fair. Christ has bigger plans for you. You are called to be a peacemaker. Don't you want to be something otherworldly? A taste of heaven on earth. In Christ, you can. And know that as you live out this calling, you will obtain a blessing. This is a promise to all peacemakers in Christ. And it's so very contrary to so much wisdom of our day It bothers me how much therapeutic self-help rhetoric is out there about today about getting rid of people who drag you down. This is not our calling as the church. Our calling is not to jettison one another, but to lift one another up. From the perspective of Christ, you should pity those people who are not living in the way of Christ. Not hate them. They need you to love them back into health. And Christ can and will give you the strength to bless them. You are called to bless believers, the near ones and the far ones, the easy ones and the hard ones. And you can do so with confidence, knowing that you will inherit a blessing that is even more undeserved and far more abundant. We've said a lot about living in alignment with our coming hope. Well, what do we hope for? I think the most, one of the most beautiful things that we hope for is that on Judgment Day, Christ will look at you and me and bless those who have sinned against him, returning a blessing for cursing. This is how Jesus loved you, how he loves me and you, and how he will love us. May we have the faith to dare to live and love like him even when nobody around us would blame us for not doing so. And as we live in this hope, it's going to beg some questions (laughs) from people around us. And so Peter tells us we need to be ready to answer those questions. That's what he says in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that brings us to our second context, how Christians relate to the world. Again, he shows us what's to mark our heart and then how it shapes our lives. In verse 14 and 15, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's saying there will be people who don't get you, people who don't agree with you, who don't like you. But that's going to tempt you to lose focus on who you are and what you're here to do. But he says, don't get caught up in that. 
Keep the first things first. Honor Jesus Christ, your Lord, as holy in your heart. Let him have the highest place in your heart. Seek him and his will and let his presence calm you and let his peace rule you. Then you won't be troubled and you won't fear, he says. And as you're pursuing Jesus, you will be zealous for what is good. And by that, he means what he's just quoted from Psalm 34. Peter has been meditating on Psalm 34. He's quoted it twice in this letter. And he summarizes living out this psalm with the phrase, being zealous for what is good. So let's read it again, that that quote from Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what he's saying is, if you want to pursue God's vision of the good life, keep a rein on your tongue. Don't speak evil and don't lie. Turn away from sin and selfishness and pursue peace and righteousness. And as you live this way, he says in Psalm, in that Psalm, God is with you and he's listening to you. And he's opposed to those who don't live this way. And this ought to give you great confidence. What's it matter then who else is against you if God is on your side? If God is for us, who can be against us? But he knows what this kind of knowledge can do to a person if it's not used correctly, right? He he makes sure he qualifies how we are to explain this hope to a watching world. He says that we are to speak to them with gentleness and respect. Because he knows that when a person thinks that God Almighty is on their side, we are often tempted to let that puff us up so that we look down on other people. And we don't treat them with respect. What's to respect? They're sinners, We don't treat them with gentleness. After all, they're not gentle in their critique of us. We have God on our side. But don't you see, that's exactly the opposite of how Peter says we ought to be. Because we are living for God and honoring Christ as holy, we are enabled to speak the truth with love and be gentle, not harsh and condemning. We can be respectful, not demeaning or judgmental. Remember, part of what Peter says, being zealous for good is, is keeping a rein on your tongue. As James says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is from the same mouth. Come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? He's saying if we are following Jesus, who described himself as gentle and lowly in heart, then our speech ought to be marked by his heart. If we are honoring Christ as holy in our hearts, we will be gentle and respectful when we speak to unbelievers. Even those who treat us poorly. And by this, we are blessed as peacemakers, for we shall be called sons of God. And in that same chapter where Jesus says that we are peacemakers are sons of God, he uses that phrase sons of God a second time when he says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus changed the world when he taught this. And I think that by using sons of God in reference first to peacemaking and then to loving your enemies second, he's making a connection for us that we make peace by loving and praying for our enemies. He goes on to say, For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus didn't just say stuff like this. He lived it out to the end. And he calls us and invites us to do that with him. To yoke ourselves to him and learn from him. For he is gentle and lowly in heart. And he will give us tender hearts and humble minds. And he will make us peacemakers the kind of people who diffuse wrath instead of fanning its flames. The way of Jesus has power to subdue fruitless arguments and break vicious cycles and turn enemies into friends and change history. A little less than two years after uh, Martin Luther King was killed, uh, a, a man named John Perkins was working on a, his own nonviolent resistance movement in Mississippi. And Perkins' movement overlapped with King's, but instead of becoming famous through his speeches, he was known for his community Bible studies. And once, Perkins uh, was leading a nonviolent march in protest of racial inequality in Mississippi, and a group of college students who participated in the march, uh, they left to return home after it was over and were followed by police. And they crossed over a county line, and the police car pulled them over and ordered all the students out of the van and arrested them, and took them to jail where they were kicked and stomped and beaten with billy clubs. And their nonviolence had been met with violence. John Perkins was notified, and he quickly got a couple friends and went to be with them. And when they arrived at the police station, they were met in the parking lot and told to wait outside for the sheriff. And instead, a dozen officers poured out of the station to arrest them, and they beat them within an inch of their lives. And in and out of consciousness, Perkins remembers seeing a lot of blood and being forced to clean it up while they beat him some more. And I don't know how I would have responded if I were in his shoes, but I marvel at how he responded. He says, they were like savages, like some horror out of the night. And I can't get their faces, I can't forget their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at demons. Hate did that to them. I couldn't hate back. He said, when I saw what hate had done to them, I could not hate back. I could only pity them. I didn't ever want hate to do to me what it had already done to those men. And that night as he was in and out of consciousness and those college students were caring for him, he prayed, God, if you will let me get out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. And if you're familiar with his ministry, God answered that prayer in significant ways. None of us may ever face the kind of injustice John Perkins faced, but I pray that by God's grace, we face the much smaller conflicts and even irritations in our lives with the same attitude, with a refusal to let bitterness take root and a renewed passion for the gospel of peace.
and a commitment to Jesus who transforms and reconciles and makes peace by the blood of his cross. But if we are to be peacemakers, we need God to do this work in our hearts. So I want to close by having us read a prayer together, a Franciscan prayer inspired by the ministry of St. Francis of Assisi. And so I want you all to, to participate in this. I'll read the regular text, and when we come to a portion in bold, we'll all read that together, okay? Let's pray this prayer together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives. It is in self-forgetting that one finds. It is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me as we continue in prayer? Father, make us into peacemakers. Give us tender hearts and humble minds as we remember the grace that we have received from your Son, who, loving us, chose rather to receive wounds than to give them. Remove our self-righteousness and pride-driven demands for respect. Overthrow the tyranny of anger in our hearts and institute instead the reign and rule of your peace in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.